Hello, everyone. I'm Esther Pan Sloan, Head of Partnerships, Policy, and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to Season 2 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we are focused on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. Today, we're very pleased to be speaking with Marcus Brandt, the Head of Office and Country Director for Myanmar at International IDEA, an intergovernmental organization dedicated to promoting democracy with its headquarters in Stockholm, Sweden. Marcus, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Nice to talk to you, Esther. Please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What did you study? And what led you to international affairs? I was born and grew up in Vienna, Austria, and uh, went to school there and studied law at Vienna University. And that was the 1980s when I went to school and finished school, started university. And I would say I was quite shaped by the historical events of 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Cold War, fall of the Iron Curtain, and the opening of Central and Eastern Europe, and eventually in the early 90s, the Balkan Wars. Already during that time, I was very interested in international affairs, international development, and the historical changes that were going on around my country at the time. I studied law and international relations in Vienna, in Brussels, Bologna, and Florence, focusing on constitutional and international law. And already during my studies, so to say, I was very interested in having an international perspective. I then worked briefly in academia and also in the Austrian diplomatic service, and then took an opportunity to work for the OSCE mission in Kosovo in 1999, which was practically my first field experience working for an international organization. I had, during my studies, already worked part-time on a voluntary basis for a humanitarian agency delivering relief items to refugee camps in the Balkans. And so I was very interested in working in that geographic area. Then I stayed for the OSCE for a few years, eventually moving to Warsaw to the ODIR, the Office for Democratic Institutions and Human Rights in Warsaw. And throughout that time, I thought it was good to have a, a strong legal background, a strong academic background, but to combine that, of course, with a much more practical outlook on dealing with people in conflict settings and working on concrete changes on the ground. I stayed with the OSCE until 2006 and then moved to New York, initially following my wife, who was also working for the UN, eventually ended up working for UNDP, and then basically stayed with UN and uh, UN-related uh, organizations until last year. And that path took me from New York to Nepal and Thailand, Myanmar, and later Ukraine. And then last year, I joined International IDEA in September and moved to take up my current position. So we'll come back to Myanmar in a minute. But Marcus, I wonder if you could tell us what it was like in the 90s to be growing up in Vienna, heart of Western Europe, the cradle of former empires, and then seeing the Balkans happen right next door. I know for the United States, it was a big moment of awareness for a lot of foreign policy experts that this could be happening in Europe in modern times, but it must have been even more an intense feeling in Europe. So I wonder if you could tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, that's a very interesting question because it really shaped 
my understanding of international affairs and of, of historical events and in a way made it more immediate to experience history in our time. When I went to school, we learned about history as something that was quite long time ago. Of course, we learned a lot about our own country's history and its tragic involvement in the in World War II and, and the Nazi regime. And the sort of awareness for how fragile political institutions and, and state structures are that I had somehow learned about in history class in high school became very apparent and very concrete uh, when watching the dissolution of the former Yugoslavia and the eventually the wars that tore up the region. We were in Austria very directly involved in the sense of being the first point of call for waves of refugees. And it was just a few hours drive from Vienna to go down to Croatia or the Bosnian border. And so I spent a lot of time also visiting friends there and, and became very familiar with the region and, and followed all these tragic events. And is that, Marcus, where you developed really a commitment to the idea of democratic governance? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I would say I grew up quite politically aware, following my own country's politics very closely. But I would say in the Balkans, in ex-Yugoslavia, it, it became also clear what kind of role international organizations and international partners can play. And I would say that by 1999, it had become very clear that despite all kinds of stated good intentions, the efforts by international organizations are often very limited impact and limited effect and sometimes even counterproductive. So I think it is that, and that still has followed me all the way until now that I have a very critical sense of what we are trying to do. I still believe that it is important and possible for international organizations to promote development, to promote peace, to promote democratic development. But I think one has to approach this with a lot of humility and modesty and certainly with an attitude of learning and critical self-reflection in order to get it right. So, Marcus, you've worked for most of the major international institutions working on democratic governance, including the United Nations Development Program, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OECE that you were mentioning, the European Union, Open Society Foundation. Which approach to improving democracy have you found particularly effective? That it depends very much on the specific context of what works. And even if something works well in one country, doesn't necessarily mean that the same approach would work well in another. So I think it starts as an international person or international organization trying to come into a context, trying to have an impact on something as complicated and complex as establishing or fostering a democratic culture, it means that you have to really tune in very much into the context. So I think it starts with being very familiar with the local circumstances and, of course, being very much aware of the limited impact and the sometimes counterproductive impact of international involvement. I would also say that taking a long-term view is quite essential and that hoping for quick results and quick fixes is something that is usually an illusion. Of course, in crisis situations, solutions need to be found, but sometimes it has also been shown that the immediate conflict resolution measures or structures that are found later on become a burden when it comes to deepening uh, democratic uh, development and democratic culture. 
So uh, I think it is very important to approach contexts of emerging democracies with a lot of caution and humility, an attitude of learning and searching, identifying who in the, the dynamics in the local society, working with change makers on the ground and never losing sight of the political nature of this type of work. I think the one big fallacy is to fall into a trap of thinking of it as too much of a technical exercise in terms of providing technical assistance. But in the context of democracy, any assistance you provide has political impact on the political dynamics on the ground and must be understood accordingly. And what do you say, Marcus, to critics from other parts of the world? The Western approach has always favored or has traditionally favored democratic governance as the best way to organize societies. But there are many societies now that argue that's a Western creation and that, as you say, international actors should have humility and respect local customs and local approaches. What do you say to governments who argue that maybe democracy is not for everyone? Well, I think that this idea that democracy is a Western concept and that it is just a tool of spreading Western influence, I think that was quite strongly seen in the 1990s. But I think by now we have overcome that quite a lot. We have, first of all, seen even very deep crises of democracy in Western countries, including the United States, the cradle of modern democracy, but also many countries in Europe. And on the other hand, we see waves of democratic movements, such as the one in Southeast Asia right now, that are not a product of Western influence, but are very much homegrown movements of young people mostly, who simply want a government that is accountable, that is elected and representative of the interest of the people and not captured by the elite. So I strongly believe that the basic building blocks of democracy are universal values and are universally accepted, but the exact form and the shape and structures of democratic processes are of a great variety. But I genuinely do not believe that there are nations that like to be suppressed, that people like to be lied to, that like to be exploited and taken advantage of by elites. And I also believe that a lot of the crisis in democracies that have followed the structures of democracy, but that have remained very unequal societies, have also realized that there is a strong social and equality dimension to democracy, and that that needs to be factored in also when it comes to democracy promotion. Thank you, Marcus. I think we've all seen, working from our position here in the United Nations, that Essentially, people around the world want basically the same things, health, education, access to a good job. They want, as you say, government that's accountable to them, where they have some say in how the rules are made, and they want a sense that they have a fair chance at life. And I think you're exactly right that some of the discontent we've seen in more established democracies has been young people and other people feeling like that promise is not being lived up to. Let's turn now to Myanmar. You've been involved in Myanmar for a long time. You taught a course on international human rights law there in 2013 and returned as head of the IDEA country office in 2019. How did the country change in that time before the recent events? Yes, I was actually lucky to witness the changes in 2011 and 2012 in the early years of transition after the many years of military rule. I came in initially with an assignment for UNDP to conduct a governance assessment 
as one of the first international organizations after the changes, looking very much at the constitutional framework and what space it provided for democratic development. And then in the following years, I worked for the UN and some other entities on designing new programs. I wrote some research papers on constitutional issues and also taught some courses, as you mentioned, at the university and some of the governmental training facilities. And during those years, I met many change makers and people oriented towards change, both inside and outside government structures. And I've seen them grow gradually over the years. And this past decade, that just so abruptly ended with the coup on the 1st of February, was a time of uh, unprecedented opening, contact to the world, digitization, also some economic development, and I would say particularly the loss of fear. People had grown up under military dictatorship, very much intimidated and also very much uh, disconnected from society, other than the personal contacts and networks that people always, of course, retained. But there was very little of a society-wide awareness of the strength of civil society and of citizens vis-a-vis their rulers. But now, in these last 10 years, most people realize that change is actually possible. And in, in a sense, they have tasted freedom, to, to put it a bit poetically. But I, I truly think that this is actually the reason that is behind this massive mobilization for democracy that we see at the moment. And of course, we've been watching with very heavy hearts what has been happening in Myanmar since February. So you were in Yangon on February 1 when the military coup happened, and you've since left the country with your international colleagues. Please give us a sense of what's happening now and also how your local staff are faring. Even though I was based in Yangon, I was in Nepitor in uh, the last two weeks of January and also on the 1st of February because I had uh, expected to attend the opening session of the parliament and then conduct a number of trainings for the new MPs as part of one of our programs. So I was in the capital when it uh, happened, when the military arrested the president and took over the government buildings on the 1st of February. Initially, there was a complete blackout, internet, phones, everything was down, and only the state-controlled TV stations were up and were announcing that the military had taken over. The initial reaction was a great state of shock around the whole country. But after a few days, it became quite clear that most people, certainly all people in my environment, were not just devastated by these developments, but were also determined to resist it. And then after a few days, and then throughout all of February, when I was back in Yangon, I witnessed the beginnings of this mobilization of society to express their discontent with the military takeover and to protest for the release of all those political leaders that had been detained and the reversal of the coup and the respect of the elections that had taken place in November last year. I should also say that International IDEA has had a large country program in Myanmar since 2013 with about 40 staff, three main program directions, one focusing on elections, one on parliamentary development, and one on constitutional reform. And in that sense, all these work areas were directly and heavily affected by these events. And uh, we certainly made it very clear 
as international idea that we not only condemned the coup, which was an unconstitutional takeover of state power, but that we were also not ready to work with these new military installed uh, institutions in order to lend uh, legitimacy and recognition to them. So for the first uh, month after the coup, we were basically waiting to see, to watch the developments. So we saw the emergence of the democratic movement, not just among civil society, but also many thousands of civil servants started to resist and to refuse to take orders from the military. And the elected members of parliament formed a shadow parliament with the legitimacy deriving from the elections, which were conducted with the observation of international observer groups and clearly reflected the choice of the people and therefore also gave a mandate to the members of parliament that then got together and basically formed this underground parliament that has now also formed the national unity government in order to gain international recognition. In March, the crackdown by the military began and it became very clear that it was no longer possible for us uh, to remain in the country. So we relocated all of our international staff outside of the country and stopped all uh, program activities in the country that would put any of our national staff at risk of being persecuted. This is, by the way, in line with also the approach by other international democracy organizations that our uh, concern for our national partners and uh, staff is paramount priority. And we therefore try to minimize the risk we expose anyone to, which makes it, of course, very difficult and limited for us to have any kind of constructive engagement and contribution to the developments on the ground. But since April, May, we have taken up basically the effort to design a new program direction, so to say, looking forward and seeing also the opportunities that this recent development has brought. What we have seen is that the coup has created an almost united opposition across society and has brought together many groups that until now has found it very difficult to speak with each other, let alone agree on the country's future. And we have now seen that there has been a lot of reconciliation between ethnic groups, religious communities, between political forces. And there is, I would say, a moment of a new beginning almost that could be the start of a new historical era for the country that would, first of all, bring genuine peace to the country. And in some areas, it should be remembered, civil war has been going on for the past 70 years. So that is a very important priority, but also to finally complete the project of democratization in the sense of building a federal system that does justice to all the demands from the various ethnic groups that live in remoter areas that have since long felt excluded and marginalized by the central government, but also to find a way to finally establish civilian control and democratic rule over the security sector, in particular the armed forces, the army and the police that have until now enjoyed an autonomous status and were not included under the control of the parliament and the civilian government. 
So this is, of course, all projects for the future. But the fact that these discussions have started and that the debate is going on among democratic forces makes me optimistic that in the long run, we will see not only a return of democracy in Myanmar, but also the beginning of a new quality of democratic governance. Thank you for that assessment, Marcus. We have been watching, of course, this as everything unfolds, because UNCDF has the country office in Myanmar as well. So we have been equally concerned about our local staff. They've been sending quite harrowing reports of what's happening there. So it's nice to see that there is some kind of hope for the future, because as we watch this absolute, unbelievable outpouring of just pure courage of young people and people across the country demonstrating for the kind of country they want, we also know with our knowledge of history that often these demonstrations end in tragedy, which we have seen many people already lose their lives for this. So it's encouraging that you have an optimistic view of what can come out of this terrible time. I know many of our audience and colleagues feel quite helpless watching what's happening in Myanmar. What can our audience do if they want to help? Well, I think for one, it is continuing to pay attention to it. Sometimes the crises flare up in the international news media and such as the conflict in eastern Ukraine, for example, get forgotten over the years. And I think it is important to keep it on the agenda, to keep paying attention to it and to keep demanding what was the original demand by the international community, including the UN, which is to reverse the coup, to restore democracy and to respect the votes that were freely expressed in the elections of November 2020. This is a situation that is quite different, actually, from many protest movements of democratic nature, such as even Belarus, where an election took place, but where the official results were probably not uh, reflecting what was actually the choice of the people. In Myanmar, you had an official, transparently reported election that was certified by the Election Commission. The MPs were appointed and were on their way to the parliament on the day when they were prevented from convening as the parliament. And so I think that makes the situation in Myanmar quite different and much more clear-cut than is usually the case in this type of democratic movement scenarios. I would also say that it is important to provide opportunities, especially for young people from Myanmar, to go abroad, to study abroad, to gain international experiences. At this point in time, it, the opportunities for young people from Myanmar to leave Myanmar and to spend some years abroad is rather limited. I know many who would like to do that, but who would all want to return to the country to rebuild the country and to build a, a new democratic society. But they often want to study abroad, want to gain experience abroad. And all the people that I know that have had this opportunity have benefited greatly from it. So I think there is still a great opportunity for the rest of the world to open up opportunities for people from Myanmar to come and spend some time, make connections, make experiences, to eventually return back and to rebuild the country when the crisis is over. Thank you, Marcus. Those are excellent recommendations. So I think in our discussion about Myanmar, we're really illustrating that SDG 16 on peace, justice, and strong institutions is particularly difficult to achieve. And this sustainable development goal, which talks about access to information, the ability of citizens to hold governments accountable, access to justice, 
It was particularly controversial in the negotiation process because, of course, not all governments agree with these ideas. So how would you assess progress on this SDG outside of what's happening in Myanmar? Well, let's start maybe with underlining why the SDGs were designed in the way they were and what the lessons were from the MDGs era, so to say, and and why it was felt necessary to emphasize peace and justice and governance issues in SDG 16. First of all, I would also say that it is important to read the SDGs not just as a list of 17 goals and associated targets, but one has to read the entire Agenda 2030, even if it's a bit of a longer document, but I think it's worth a read. And when I did a lot of work on the SDGs and the Agenda 2030 in Ukraine for UNDP, I always emphasized that one has to start with reading the Agenda 2030 and in order to understand the meaning of the SDGs. And it is also quite clear that the big benefit from the SDGs is that they clearly emphasize the interrelatedness, interconnectivity, and interdependence between all these SDGs, and that you cannot have social and economic progress or the right type of environmental or climate action without having effective, accountable, and transparent institutions and participatory decision-making processes. And I also think it was a very big signal for the democracy and governance community and organizations and experts working in this field, that they also should not ignore social and economic issues and aspects when working on democracy. So this makes it, of course, very difficult to actually do something in practice if you start with saying everything is related to everything and everything is dependent on everything else. But I think that organizations like the UN are actually able, in one way or another, if they are well-coordinated and if they are well set up at the country level to bring all these different aspects together. Thank you for reminding us, Marcus, of the context. We speak a lot with investors on this podcast and they do tend to pick and choose a little bit and say, I want some gender and I want some climate. But of course, the SDGs, as you say, were not negotiated in a vacuum. And there are very few institutions in the world that can work on some of these intractable and interconnected issues, but the United Nations is one of them. So, Marcus, if there is one thing you could do to improve democratic governance and the transparency and accountability of organizations and institutions around the world, what would it be? Hard to say, but I would say to make it clear that this is not just a priority for a few specialists and organizations but that ultimately democracy, democratic governance is something that everyone benefits from. And that is also why it's not enough to just look at electoral processes or constitutional arrangements if they just do not deliver on equality and social justice for the benefit of everyone in societies. So I think we are still very much in work in progress when it comes to this. And what is important is, I think, to start involving everybody very early on. And I would really wish that more countries include issues related to democracy, justice, human rights in early childhood education and then throughout the educational cycle in order to make sure that this is not a political issue, really, that is between left and right. But this is about recognizing the basic human values and that I think are universal and that everybody can agree on and that we can find structures and systems and mechanisms that maximize the possibility for everyone to live to their full potential. 
It will remain a work in progress. I think it is a continuing challenge at times of even greater inequality that is now resulting from the pandemic at a time of runaway technological progress that we don't know the real impacts of. But if more people feel an ownership for having a responsibility for the quality of our democratic societies, the better chances we have that we find good solutions. Thank you, Marcus, for the reminder that democracy is a participatory sport and that all of us need to play it if we want to make sure that it goes in the direction that it should. Thank you so much for being with us today, Marcus. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you again to our audience for tuning in to UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find our podcast on Apple, Spotify, and our website, www.uncdf.org.